Welcome, everybody, to Mastering Rod Building. I'm your host, Bill Faulkner, and I am super excited today to talk about one of my very favorite topics in the world, and that is slow-pitch jigging rods. And I'm very, very fortunate to have with me today someone who, if we were doing this on video, would have to have his face pixelated and his voice uh, covered over. The, none other than the secret squirrel, one of the OG American godfathers of slow pitch jigging, Mr. Rob Jenkins. So there's a chance that if you are following the slow pitch jigging world, you might not have heard Rob Jenkins name, but you, you might know the secret squirrel and uh, you should know who he is. Um, I'll tell a quick story, which would embarrass Rob and he'd never tell it. But I arrived at slow pitch jigging quite accidentally and independently. I was speed jigging at the time and I was I had heard of a knot that was even stronger than the AG chain knot. And so it's called the TN knot, which is essentially an AG chain knot that goes through the eye of the hook or, or bait or whatever swivel three times instead of once. Great knot. There's a instructional video on my YouTube channel for how to tie it. But and in searching for that, I found a site called Japanese Angler's Secrets, uh, written by Totos JAS, who is a friend and a mentor. It's a wonderful, really kind of the only English language source at the time for what slow pitch jigging was. So it's a wild hair. I call Killsong uh, up at Jig and Pop and order some black hole blanks. And he sends me some build sheets and I start building some slow pitch rods and I start ordering some jigs and from Japan and some split rings and some assist hooks and all this stuff. You couldn't get it anywhere. Nobody knew what it was. Uh, and I, I did this for about five years. And I, I really thought I might be the only guy in the, this country uh, who's slow pitch jigging. Uh, and I, I got a little cocky. I thought I was pretty good at it. And then I finally heard legend again and again of this boat out of Key West, Captain Greg Mercurio and the, the Yankee Caps. And I finally made the leap with my buddy Colby Beelan and we went down on this trip, uh, jigging trip on the Yankee Caps, which I highly recommend to anybody who enjoys uh, long range offshore fishing or slow pitch jigging, just a great experience. And lo and behold, did I get my eyes open because I found a boat full of people uh, who had been doing it much longer than I had uh, and, you know, for whom I was a whippersnapper. And I also got a crash course in depth. I realized very quickly that I had never fished deeper than 200 feet. And when you go over arguably 400, certainly 600 and over a thousand, it is a different world. And I was very fortunate. Colby and I were both very fortunate to be surrounded by a bunch of very, very uh, good anglers who are great guys, many of whom are friends to this day who were able to really accelerate our learning curve and teach us a lot. And, and perhaps the most instrumental of those is the secret squirrel, Rob Jenkins. We call him the secret squirrel because unlike a lot of people that want to brag and show off their jig collections and uh, talk about where they're fishing and what they're catching them on, uh, Rob is from the old school of protecting his numbers and and, and protecting some of his secrets, but is a, a wonderful guy, very smart guy, has probably more hours. You know, I don't know who has the most hours at the rail as a slow pitch jigger in the U.S., but my money would be on him. He's a very good angler, very dialed into the details. And, and once you get to know him, very generous with the information. So I think we're all very, very fortunate to have him on today. Um, he's been a fisherman for 45 plus years and is one of the best. Uh, I describe him all the time as he's one of the best fishermen uh, I know. And it doesn't matter how we're fishing or what we're fishing for. Um, like I said, I think he's been slow pitching 
more than 10 years, as long as anybody was among literally, I think a handful of four, five, six guys in Florida that first got on it. And he's got a lot of hours at the rail uh, for lots of species. Uh, he's a member of the Jig Pro, JYG Pro uh, Pro staff. Uh, he's a former Shimano Pro staff. He is a jig designer and consultant. If you Google him, you'll see that he wrote for years for a publication called the New Jersey Angler and covered everything from boat handling to, you know, species specific guides for how to pursue certain fish. So I know he's he's mad at me for talking about him this much. Without further ado, welcome to Mastering Rod Building, uh, Sensei Secret Squirrel, Rob Jenkins. Bill, that was an extremely flattering introduction. Well, yeah, well, there you go. Make sure the missus listens to it, right? Oh, absolutely. She's uh, unfortunately she'll be sitting there giggling away. The well, that's time. okay. Tell I I bring her up on purpose. Tell her I said hello. Hopefully, you guys can can have a nice glass of. Uh, we share a passion for good whiskey, me, you, and your wife, uh, and good rum. So maybe you guys could pour a glass of something good and and listen to the podcast together. So. Uh, welcome to Mastering Rod Building. I'm super excited to have you on because, like I said, you're not only a friend, but have been such a mentor to me and, and have been doing this for so long uh, and have so much time at the rail doing it. And I just really appreciate you being willing to share some of your expertise. You know, I, I always start these things by telling people there's more than one way to do everything. Personal taste and preference comes into it and all that. But certainly um, it's helpful. It was so helpful for me to be able to uh, sit at the knee of someone who's been there, done that. And, and learn a lot about what works and what doesn't. And, you know, you've, you've taught me so much from specific, you know, assist hook rigging things to when to use singles versus doubles. You got me using lighter line, different knots. So like, just, I think it's such a privilege to have you and I'm super excited that you're here, but you don't get special treatment. And I, everybody who comes on this podcast, the first question I ask them, uh, Rob is how did you get into fishing? So, and, and actually I've never asked you this question. So I'm, I'm, I can't wait to hear the answer. Wow. How did I get into fishing? I've got to say, Bill, dad started taking me flounder fishing, porgy fishing, black fishing from, from the beaches, from the boats, from the piers, uh, family vacations centered yep. around dad going fishing. And it, it just, uh, it got to be every time dad was getting ready to go fishing. Can I go? Am I going? Do I get to go? When do I get yep. to go? And then yep. late, later in life, that kind of thing got held over me with report cards and grades. Oh. You, know, you, you don't you don't do well in a report card. There's no special trip for you. Oof. Yeah. So you gotta hate clever parents that adapt, man. <laughs> <laughs> but but it worked. Yeah. So literally, you just been fishing for everything. You're also one of these unique guys who almost any kind of an efficient I talk about freshwater, saltwater, anywhere. You've you've done some of it or very aware of it. So you've just been at it hard your whole life, huh? Uh, what's what's that old saying? When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Yeah. If you if you if you couldn't go to Long Island fishing, you hopped on a bike and went went and caught carp and suckers or whatever else was right. available. I mean, you want to bend a rod, you got to you know it, it's blowing too hard out in the ocean to fish a fly rod for striped bass. Go back right. into the river and catch the little stripers and the herring that are mixed in with them. Right, fascinating, and, and you know I think all of those times you pursue those species, use those different techniques, you know, experience those different conditions. I think they make you better angler. But, you know, that's I guess that's neither here nor there. But that's um, so tell me, because I was kind of my mind was blown. Here I am in Alabama, you know, corresponding with, you know, Toto's JAS and, you know, slow pitch jigging for snapper and all this stuff. And everybody thinks I'm crazy. Never seen or heard anything I'm doing. Then I go on the Shanky Caps trip and you guys have been doing it like longer than I've lived in Alabama. So, like, how did you how did you get into slow pitch in the first place? Because you were 
among the very, very early, maybe the earliest. I don't know. I don't care. I have, it's not a competition. It's, you know, it, we're, we're just, I'm, I'm glad we're here. I don't care how we got started, but you know, you were there kind of at the beginning at ground zero uh, in the U S how did you get into it? You, cause you beat me by many years. Like how did it start for you? Bill, exactly the same way it started for you. I, I found it a little sooner. I started okay. seeing the videos and the products and then these amazingly designed and crafted jigs. Yeah. Uh, started poking around, seeing, finding the videos. Uh, then you, then in looking around, uh, you can't get to tackle it unless you get it from Asia. So right. here we are trying to custom build stuff to make it work. And, you right. know, and then Ray Shecker from Ray's Custom Rods was one of the first yeah. guys to actually slow pitch in the U.S. and start building and making custom builds available. Yep. So uh, a partner, uh, well, I found Benny Ortiz. He, he mm-hmm. had been doing it a little while longer. I literally bought some of his first uh, generation rods. I uh, had Ray build me a couple of rods. Uh, yep. I got to throw Jeff's name in there because he was in with that group, uh, Jeff, Brian. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it just... I don't, I don't want to say uh, it started here in South Florida, but I, I got to kind of say, hey, it started here in, in South Florida. And again, I can say this because I'm not somebody who started it and I'm not I'm just a student of the game and I'm just fascinated by this stuff. And I've had the privilege of meeting most of the people you just mentioned. I, I have not met Ray and he's a kind of an idol of mine and, and someone I've correspond with a lot for for you don't anyone you mentioned it, but. Ray ran a, a website called Ray's Custom Works. He is a very, very good builder. Uh, used to build a lot of um, slow pitch rods on the Sea Falcon blanks and was kind of the guy who could get Sea Falcon blanks when nobody else could. This is before Sea Falcon got purchased by uh, Shimano. But Ray uh, used to also fish with a, a mutual friend of ours, Captain Brian Dietz who taught me how to tie the PR bobbin knot the right way. Um, and those guys used to fish together. And Ray had a wonderful blog on his Ray's Custom Works, Custom Rods website. And they used to test knots and break line. And and I don't even know if that website's even still up, but it's it was a wealth of knowledge. And again, was an eye-opener for me uh, of somebody who's really at it. And, and, and a lot of my uh, early uh, slow pitch builds were heavily informed by what Ray was doing because those rods were so beautifully crafted and, and worked so well. Right. So, and you started like we're, we're fishing Southern Florida in this Gulf, but you've also done some cold water Northeast slow pitch in the early days, right? You fish for some other kinds yes. of fish. Am I, am I making that up or that's true? No. Well, uh, being with, being with Shimano, and I know this is going to come up later. Being with Shimano, the first thing I learned about was rod systems. Yep. You know, we designed these rods around these jigs with this action and ideally those reels. And, you know, we're going to sell the package deal. Right. And in the beginning, I was a little opposed to that because I I, I dabbled in the custom building. I, I've done some competitive long distance casting. And I mean, there's no system there. You make it up as you go. Right. But to, to understand the system and then... You know, nobody had taken me out on the water and given me the here's how we do this. Right. So this kind of this whole time, I'm slow pitch jigging with slow, methodical lifts, drops, jerks. Right. Because the fish were fish were colder, less responsive. Right. So I, I had kind of been slow pitch jigging with the techniques before it was even a thing. Right. Yeah. That And you occasionally meet folks like on the west coast that are like oh we've been diamond jigging for 30 years we we invented slow pitch it's like okay i have no interest in the argument but yeah it, it's fascinating if you're paying attention you gravitate towards what works right 
So we'll start at a very basic level. I know we've got all kinds of people tuned in and listening here. So, you know, slow pitch jigging is an entirely different technique, right? It was developed in Japan. This we do know. It was developed in Japan by a gentleman named Sensei Norihiro Sato. And for those of you who are familiar with the Japanese fishery, it's, you know, volcanic islands. It's very deep water. It has received tremendous, just crushing fishing pressure for hundreds of years, right? And so um, it tends to be an innovation, a ground for innovation uh, for different techniques and things like this because it is so difficult to catch fish there, both because of the pressure and that it's overfished and because it just, you know, is challenging conditions fishing deep water. And so Norihiro Sato developed this technique to target inactive fish, reluctant fish, heavily pressured fish. And, the, you know, the way that I kind of describe it to people is it's almost forget everything you know about jigging which for most people is mechanical or real active jigging where you're uh, sort of the you're working the the lure or bait or jig when you're actively pulling on it. Uh, I almost tell them like everything's opposite in slow pitch, right? And this is really about a passive, uh, you're, you have an entire tackle system designed around manipulating the jig so that it's very attractive to the fish on the fall. And you're almost... It's almost more like, uh, you know, uh, fishing a Senko for bass or something like that, where it's fishing best when you're doing nothing to it, but just letting it drop. Right. So how do, how would you describe slow pitch to people? And what do you tell new people to it that are trying to kind of wrap their heads around it? Wow. Great question, Bill. The best it's, it's a slow rhythmic presentation that you could speed up or slow down depending on your needs, the current conditions. And you could also uh, really, truly affect your entire action and presentation just by changing the shape of the jig. Right. Or, or if you really want, I mean, you really want to get technical, just changing the hooks that you have hanging off that jig will affect your entire presentation. The line you use, the leader you use, right? Like, yes. Yeah. So, but all that being said, I do think one of the things that scares people away is this is a technique that takes... Uh, a little bit of attention and a little bit of investment, right? So to do this and, and you can, you can drop the jig on anything and you may catch some fish on it. And look for the example that I use with people is like when the highly endangered American red snapper bite is on fire, <laughs> you can do whatever you want. And you're going to catch fish, right? They don't particularly exhibit a lot of, uh, you know, specific, you know, pickiness about the jigs or anything else. Right. So do whatever you want to do, catch fish, have fun. But if you really want to get into this, as you're sort of alluding to, it's an entire tackle system. Right. And so that's not to be a snob. That's not to complicate things. We, we can keep it fairly simple. But, you know, we're talking today about the rods. But if you really want to be very, very effective consistently with this and speci specifically be able to catch fish when nobody else is able to catch things and you're going to think I'm crazy. But Rob, you and I've seen it over and over, including times when fish will not bite live or fresh dead bait. You do want to pay attention to the details and everything matters. So it's kind of an entire tackle system. Right. We're talking about rods today. Yeah. But just just kind of put in the parking lot and make a note that you also need to rethink your line, your leader, your knots, your rigging, your terminal tackle, your hooks, you know, how many hooks, how you rig those hooks. Like there's a number of things to think about. But the good news is all of this stuff is available in the U.S. now, unlike when you started and even unlike years later when I started um, where we had to kind of source it all abroad or make it all ourselves. It's widely available out there now and you can. Go to a site like JYG Pro, you know, Jig Pro Fishing, JYG, and and go online. You go to a Johnny Jigs. You can go to a Real Deal Bait and Tackle or uh, SlowPitchJigging.com. Like, and you can get uh, everything you need. 
but you know, all that being said, start, I, I would say just start anywhere. Like I, I have a good guide friend in, in Venice, Louisiana, and I say, Patrick Dickinson, what's the best time to come to Louisiana to fish? And he says, whenever you can get here. Right. And when he first started telling me that, you know, before I'd fished it several times a year, I thought he was kind of being chamber of commerce, but it's true. So it's the same thing with slow pitch jigging. Like, how should you start? Just start. Right. Just get a few jigs and drop them and see what happens and try. Right. Like you don't absolutely have to invest in everything all at once, but understanding that it's a a complete tackle system uh, to, to be maximally effective and to enjoy it, you know, the most, just, just understand that's part of it. Right. And you can Google the website, Japanese angler secrets. To me, it remains the definitive guide in the English language. If you don't have any Asian language skills, which I don't to understand the tackle rigging, the philosophy, the system and all that. So it is literally like a manifesto when you read it, but just read it and take the the nuggets and, and specifically the some of the rigging diagrams and things like that are very useful if you're new to the game. So um, with that said, Rob, before we dive in on these on these. So all that is to say, this is a very specialized, very different type of rod. Right. Uh, and a yeah. rod that is really effective for slow pitch probably won't do much else right it is a definitely as as much as anything i've ever seen as a technique specific you know custom rod builder with the exception of maybe rods built specifically for distance casting competitions not distance fishing but distance casting competitions or something like that it's kind of like the most specialized piece technique specific piece of equipment i've ever come across so so talk to me about that and and educate our listeners rob on what the rod is designed to do and kind of what it's not designed to do i mean yeah when when you talk about specialized equipment the first thing i think of is two-handed spay rod okay yeah that's another one yeah yeah, what what else can you do with it nothing Pretty, pretty much. Uh, well, some of, some uh, of us can do little enough of what it's designed for, <laughs> much less anything else. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, uh, so, okay. So the, the, with the evolution of the slow pitch rod in the United States, uh, yes, we're at a good place and we're at a good place right here, right now. You could actually get some of the stuff we sourced from Asia in the local, local market. I mean, some of the stores you mentioned right up the street from us, uh, wow. Big, uh, big dog, uh, Tackled, uh, well, I go going on the internet, tackle direct, and then coming back down, uh, real right. deal. You can actually walk in and buy high end Japanese rods. I mean, literally right. deep liners. You can you, right. you have them in your hand. Right. Now, that was unheard of. Me? Like when you when you started, yeah. you guys were having to like, uh, you know, do a mail order or a money order or a you know certified check for a thousand bucks for a rod you'd never seen to hopefully a credible dealer that was actually going to ship it in a way that wasn't going to get broken and it was going to clear customs. And now you can walk into, you know, uh, your real deal bait and tackle or Johnny jigs or somewhere in the jig pro dealer and they're on the shelf, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and there's more, there's more rods than there've ever been. And we'll talk a little bit about that too. Cause I know one of the, one of the projects you and I've worked together on, that's a passion project is, is d- d- designing some rod blanks and enhancing some rod blanks, stuff like that. But so really the rod is just supposed to, all it's supposed to do is like, if you think about the a puppet with the strings and the little cross or square or whatever, someone who's a puppeteer is going to yell at me for not knowing this, but uh, marionette. a marionette, the marionette. Thank you. It's almost like the marionette. Right. And and, and you're just, yeah. you're just using the rod to manipulate the action of the jig to get bit. Yes. All right. So I'll go back one step. Okay. You sorry. Said, how do you, how do you, how do you start? All right. Uh, focus on your fishing depth. And if you have jigged, whether it's bucktail, diamond jigs, whatever it winds up being speed jigs. 
look at look at the the weights that you use routinely and look for a rod power that'll handle those rate uh, those weights so you know your 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 4 to 4 to 10 ounce diamond jigs maybe maybe you're looking for 120 to a 300 gram rod yeah so, so something, uh, something an, an ounce ratings. is about 28 grams a little bit more than 28 grams so 4 ounces would be like 100 and 13 grams, 10 ounces. And, yeah. and that can be kind of annoying for people. 10 ounces is like 280 grams. So, but, yeah. but you, you learn it pretty quickly. It's not as inaccessible as it seems in the beginning. No, oh, rough, 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 silly math, 30, 30 grams an ounce and you're right. good to go. Yep. There you go. Then there's, there's the next fact. The next factor comes in. What's your preferred length? I know we're going to talk about that a little later. Most, yep. most of the production rods are in that six foot to six. The early production rods were anywhere from six foot to six foot three, six foot eight, depending on right. who made them. Right. Uh, now the trend is actually going shorter. I mean, just it, just physics. The yep. further away the weight hangs from your body, the more work you have to do to move it. Yep. And, uh, and the more it wears on you fishing all day in a thousand feet of water with a 500 gram jig. Right. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, the next, next factor that came into place, the, the blank itself, the, the, the slow pitch jig blanks are not meant in any way, shape or form to fight the fish. The original intent of those blanks is to move that jig in such a fashion as to get the bite. Uh, you look at any one of the Japanese, early Japanese videos of Sensei Sato, he gets a bite, he gets a hookup, and they, he, they, anybody on the boat, immediately point the rod at the fish. Right. It, it's, it's, not a, it's not meant to fight a fish. Now, that, that evolved a little bit once the blank started. Uh, some folks needed some designs for Malaysia, Indonesia, where they, they focus more on cobia and grouper that, mm -hmm. like we do here in right. South Florida. Right. Uh, those rods were given a little more resistance or uh, strength in the butt and compensated a bit for being able to fight the fish. Right. I know, uh, I know there's a couple major manufacturers out looking right now. Uh, you, you yourself asked me, uh, the guys on the West Coast, want a slow pitch rod that they can rail that's just what right. they become, they've become accustomed to right but i do know some of the major manufacturers are also looking to beef up the butt of the blank right so you can do a little more fish fighting with it yeah and you know that that's evolution to me right fisheries are different uh relatively speaking our fishery for example if we say south florida we say venice louisiana or i say the northern gulf like where i fish out of the coast of you know out of alabama orange beach gulf shores destin that area we have a lot more sharks, right? Yeah. If I think about my fishery versus yours on the East coast of Florida, I deal with, uh, don't get mad at me. Don't use any bad words on the podcast. I deal with very little current, right? Um, yes. And also have to make a much longer run to get to deeper water. You guys are dealing with screaming, ripping current like all the time. And all these things uh, inform the, the jig weights you use, the way you fish, the line and leader, and you know whether you're fishing wrecks or whether you're fishing natural bottom. I mean, all these things and the sharks, right? Like uh, we, we won't get off into that topic today. That probably warrants its own podcast, but the depredation of sharks. And by that, I mean, how many times you... Uh, hook a fish and can't get it to the boat before it gets eaten is uh is frustratingly on the rise uh these days so all those things factor and, and it makes sense to me that that we would have american anglers or people dealing with some of these factors uh wanting a little bit more guts in in the rod blank right but yes. the, the what rod rob mentioned is exactly right and that is 
to think of the rod as only designed to get the bite, manipulate the jig and animate the jig and get the bite. And then technically, if your quote fingers doing it right, you're then going to really kind of point at the fish and uh, the rod has no role in fighting the fish. And you're just going to winch and use the reel, a, a compact and powerful reel with, you know, very good knots and and specific lines and leaders to just winch the fish up. And and I know that sounds a little bit crazy. And and, and I can only imagine, Rob, the, the my favorite part, it used to annoy me and now I actually find it humorous. And I, call, I tell people, I call it before we ever get on the dock. If I had a dollar for every time a captain had looked at me when I was getting on the boat with my slow pitch gear and said, what in the world are you going to do with that? We're going, on sna- we're going snapper and grouper fishing, right? And they're like, yeah, have you ever caught a snapper or a grouper? It's like, yes, I've caught a snapper or a grouper. Like, just put me on the fish and we'll see what happens, right? And then inevitably, before the end of the day, they're like, so how much does one of those rods and reels cost? And it's like, for you, they're expensive uh, because you're not a believer. But it it is a – it's okay if you're looking at this as a new potential slow pitch angler. If you are a rod builder and someone's come to you and said, hey, how do I build a slow pitch rod? And, and you're like, this is crazy. I can't believe people are catching – grouper and snapper and everything else on this. I think my personal best snapper is about 23 pounds. I've got a 27 or so pound scamp that you were with me on the boat when I caught out of Venice, Rob. We've caught, I mean, and and we've put numerous sharks to seven or eight feet to boat side in an attempt to try to save our precious jigs. We didn't want to lose, not because we wanted to pull on those fish for an hour. So all that being said, once you learn how to tie these knots. And once you, uh, it's an extreme, it's like an extreme sport of angling. We are pushing this gear to the limits. And if, once you figure out what you're doing and you fight the fish the right way and just take the rod out of it, it's shocking how effective you can be at beating fish, beating big grouper, beating big amberjack, getting them off of wrecks. Like once, once you understand the limitations of your tackle and what you can do, it's pretty impressive what you can catch on this, what is essentially ultralight tackle. It's as small and as light as stuff I would use to bass fish in Florida in the summertime, right? So um, don't don't doubt the tackle in the hands of a competent angler. It really, really works. But gee, let's. I want to talk about one of the things you, you hit on uh, starting, Rob, with the depth you think on average you're going to be fishing and therefore the weight of jigs on average uh, you think you ought to be fishing. I mean, this is, this is pretty well established out there, but like if you're not sure where to start something like a gram per foot of depth or meter of depth is not a terrible place to start, right? If you're just with a blank slate and you're like, I literally don't know if I need a 60 gram jig or a 500 gram jig, and I'm going to go fish 200 feet of water. You could start with 150, 180, 200, you know, match the the depth of water to the number of grams on the jig. That's a pretty good place to start, right? That's a great way to start. Uh, and using using that formula, I mean, two, two things with the weight of the jig. Pay attention to the shape of the jig. Pay attention to the weight of the jig. The flatter, flatter, more elongated, more surface area you get, the slower the thing is going to swim, the longer, uh, slower the thing is going to sink, the more the thing is going to swim. And then when you get to an elongated, rounded jig, and I'll throw JYG out there with our strike, you know, first first prototypes, people looked at it and said, oh, that's a speed jig. Okay, yeah, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But fishing, and actually the difference between a speed jig and a a, a slow pitch jig, speed jigs are typically symmetrical, where and the weight is focused somewhere either in the center of the jig or towards the rear of the jig, so it sinks fast. Right. Uh, slow pitch jigs are typically asymmetrical. They could be symmetrical, mm-hmm. but the weight is focused typically a little weight forward 
yeah, anything from centered to up in the front of the jig, uh, like uh, using the deep, uh, the JYG deep as an example. It's a, a broad, flat jig that flutters all over the place. Right. Conversely, if you look at the Sea Falcon uh, Deep Neo, that's weight forward. It's you can't fish it fast, but it gets down there quick. Right. So a lot of design going into these jigs. Yeah, it's a great point. So, you know, I think the big takeaway is the sh- as he said, the shape of the jig matters as much as the weight of the jig. And there are jigs which fall very slowly that flutter and dance a lot, but also catch a lot of current. And there are jigs that sink very, very quickly and fish uh, resist current better and, uh, you know, are able to, you know, deal with those challenging conditions or greater depth, even though they're the same weight as another jig. So again, we don't have to plumb, you know, boil the ocean on that or plumb all those depths, but um, understand that the shape of that matters. And for those of you that have not dropped a slow pitch jig, one of the things that I would liken it to is kind of like, if you think most of us are familiar with like a crankbait from freshwater or a, a lipped trolling plug, I don't know, for Wahoo or mackerel or tuna or whatever, Some of them have a really tight wiggle. Some of them have a really wide wobble. Some of them are designed to go fast. Some of them, they're great unless you go too fast. So think about the action of these jigs falling. And I know not everybody can see what we're doing, but almost like some fall, if it's a broad flat jig, it may fall like a leaf from a tree, you know, big swings back and forth. Some that aren't as aerodynamic just fall straight down. Uh, Some crankbaits have a really tight wiggle some have a broader wiggle like this is almost like these jigs you you pitch or jerk the jig up and then let it fall on a slack line and it's going to wiggle or wobble or dance or kick out or swim or do whatever it does on the way down and the design of the jig heavily uh informs like what it does on that fall as well as how it falls a lot of them are designed that if you will just thumb the spool a little bit and add some tension they sink like a bullet Right. And then once you get them to depth and you give them a lot of slack, they start dancing around. So just know that that's a good rule of thumb for how to start is about a gram for every foot of depth. And then, you know, uh, understand that if you're not able to get bottom, if you're not able to stay vertical, if you're not able to feel like you're getting good action on the jig, either try a heavier jig or go with a shape that sinks better and may fish better in those conditions. Right. One of the questions I get all the time, Rob, and and you sort of touched on really focusing, you've already said this, but I really want to call it out so people get it. When you look at these blanks or these jigs, they will have a PE, a line rating, which is usually in PE, right? And they have a jig range rating. The the advice I would give to people, and this sounds funny, but absolutely, completely ignore the line rating, the PE rating with a slow pitch rod. It's it's irrelevant. Uh, Agreed? Agreed. Absolutely agree. Tell tell us more about that. I know that's going to take us into the line system a little bit, but talk about that if you will. Okay. Uh, after after years of back and forth and trying to get uh, trying to make sense of a Japanese system where you know nobody told us what to do in the U.S. Right. We're looking at exactly that line rating from PE point five to four. I mean, four puts you in like eighty pound test somewhere in that neighborhood, depending on whose brand of line you're in. Right. But we're back to you're pointing the rod directly at the fish. It's not like, you know, it's not like trolling a 50 or an 80 pound, you know, regulation tackle rod. Right. Where everybody knows what the rod's going to do, how much drag to use exactly and you know, so forth and so on after after 50 years plus of big game fishing. The, yeah. For, for, for us, we, we, we don't look at the P. We don't really 
I'm not going to say we don't look at the PE. We don't look at the line strength. And, and this is where we kind of digress. We don't look at the line strength. We look at the PE. Right. Reason being, we're looking for the uh, diameter of the line. Thinner the line, the lighter the line, but the lighter the line, less resistance in the water, uh, less resistance to the drift, less resistance to current, allows you to use a lighter jig, lets the jig swim better. Right. Yeah. And so what he's referring to is this is kind of an interesting thing. When we got away from monofilament and fluorocarbon lines and we talk about braided lines, polyethylene lines, uh, Kevlar lines, you know, braids, super braids, whatever people call them. Right. And there's a variety there in the textile industry when they make a thread or weave a cord and these are woven. They may be four strand. They may be eight strand. They could be 12 strand. They could be 16 strand. They could be hollow core. They could be solid. Right. There's all kinds of line. But in, in the in the in the trade where they manufacture these things, they talk about denier and they talk about the number of fibers and the weight of that line of uh, over a specified length, uh, right? And so when we talk about, a lot of American anglers don't know this, but when you go buy a spool of Yozuri Super Braid and it's labeled as 20 pounds, that's completely arbitrary that it's rated at 20 pounds. It breaks more like 38 to 43 pounds and it is PE2. So there is a discrete specific measurement that makes sense that can be used to tell these lines apart, but it has to do with the amount of material used to manufacture the product and how much the product weighs, not necessarily the breaking strength. And when we started bringing these these uh, lines in from Asia, from Japan, you know, mostly uh, initially, we knew that the American sport fishing market was going to be confused if we didn't put a pound test rating on them. So we put a pound test rating on them and people said, oh, this in 20 pound, it's got a tiny diameter. So we said, okay, well, it's the equivalent diameter of six pound mono, but it's fish it like 20 pound, right? So again, you talk about digression, we could go down that rabbit hole for hours, but that's the, the real short <laughs> version, right? So think about if you're having trouble as we talk about PE, or if you're having trouble converting these PE line ratings, PE 1.5 is about what has historically been called 15 pound braid in the U.S., PE1 is about what has historically been called 10-pound braid in the U.S. PE2 is is historically about what's been called, uh, you know, 20-pound braid. Now, as, as you get heavier than that, it starts to get strange. But um, the, the point is you're going to have the most success fishing 20-pound braid or lighter, regardless of depth, regardless of weight of the jigs. And in some cases, Rob... You the deeper you go, which also means the, the heavier you. jigs, the lighter you go in line. Like, talk to me, t talk to us about that for a second. Okay, well, that, um... <laughs> we could go. Uh, yeah, I've, I've I've drug us in a rabbit hole, but try to do the short this, version, right? Wow, short version. So way back when this goes back to the PE rating. Way back when Shimano bought PowerPro, and that's that. At that point, I was. Uh, Shimano Pro Staff, and because I could tie the range of knots that I tied, I wound up spending most of my time in the Power Pro, Power Pro booth at the uh, at the shows. Right, which you know, all, always a blast talking to people. And you sit there, you've tied the knot so many times, you're talking to the person, looking at the person tying the knot. Your hands are just doing what they're doing, and you're tying a knot for a person that's they're just spellbound because they've never joined braid to mono or fluoro. Right, but. So with that whole with that whole progression, we were tile fishing in New Jersey, uh, seven hundred to a thousand feet. Uh, at that time, it was mostly bait fishing. We 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 some of us were trying to jig them, and then at the same time, I'm having this conversation back and forth with the salespeople and the engineers at PowerPro, going, "Hey, how light on this stuff can I go? I wanted, I, I mean, I could fish fifty pound line right now with a ten ounce jig. 
I want to go to, can I go to a 20 pound line with an eight ounce jig or a six ounce jig? And yeah. the actual answer was, we don't know. We don't know what the resistance is going to be on the line between the current, the actual water resistance with surface tension, and then how much, you know, what the drag setting can be to pull on the fish. Right. So even that, even that is, and this goes back uh, 2007. So there, there is a progression here, but now same sentence. We, here we are, here we are fishing South Florida, anywhere from, uh, you know, the reef line 30 feet out to, out to this fish out to a thousand feet. How do we catch them? Right. What happens is, and if you, if you understand math or physics or geometry, this will make total sense to you. Right. But when you think about how much line is in the water, when you're fishing in a hundred feet, Versus how much is in the water when you're fishing a thousand feet, the resistance you get, the amount, uh, just hydrodynamic resistance, the amount that the current affects your line, or if you get the joy of fishing in the parts of Florida where Rob does the sort of, what do they call the, the crazy multiple currents on different levels? Uh, oh, man. Well, first you got the Gulf Stream to contend with, and then you could wind up with a split current or uh, yeah. more multiple split currents. Right. So you might have current pulling five knots in the first hundred feet this direction, then at four hundred feet it's you know three knots in this direction. And so all that being said, the amount of resistance that the line contributes to this can be significant, right? And the deeper you yes. go, that impact is maximized. And so the the story that I like to tell people, and this is actually a trip you were on, Rob, uh, we were on the Yankee Caps one day on a, a jigging specific trip, and we were in about 680 feet of water. And man, we had the Queens and uh, the Snowies coming up almost every drop, right? I mean, it yep. was just on fire. And I was fishing a 500 gram jigging master gangster stick, which to this day is still one of my favorite jigs in the world and is probably the most copied jig in the world. So copied the jigging master just quit making it, which is a shame. But so we're using a 500 gram and I happen to have a very specific CTS slow pitch uh, rod. I have a accurate valiant 500 narrow two speed reel. And I'm catching a fish. We're all catching fish every drop. And I hang up and I end up having to break it off and I lose the jig. I lose the leader. I lose a lot of braid. That rod is out of service. And I, I put it on the rack and I grab literally an absolutely identical outfit. The same blank, built the same way, same grips, same reel, same leader, same jig. Everything's the same. And I go back to drop it. And I go from catching a fish every cast to I can't even hit bottom. Yep. For, and the only difference was in 680 feet of water in a 500 gram jig was fishing 30 pound braid, not 20 pound braid. So, uh, you know, that's the difference between 0.28 millimeters in diameter and 0.23 millimeters in diameter. It's, it's an amount you'd look at and say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's not much. It matters in 680 feet of water with a lot of current. It matters. And as you go deeper, imagine 1200 feet of water with a lot of current. So all that being said, even though it's counterintuitive, you're going to go light online. And I just, I have learned personally, I will say this. I'm not going to make Rob say anything. I'm not going to say there's an absolute to any of this actual mileage may vary. We're just trying to help you get into this world and understand the, the tackle. I'm never, ever, ever going to fish heavier than 20 pounds unless it's a very special specific use case like we're dropping on big yellowfin in less than 200 feet of water or something like there could be cases where you would go heavier but generally the pe ratings are, are irrelevant on these rods and rod blanks so don't get hung up with them because you're usually going to be using pe2 let's say 20 pound braid or lighter to have maximum success and so 
even though I don't know why they put those PE ratings on there, it's sort of irrelevant. Yeah, I agree. You know, you talk about the thin line in deep water with the current we've had, we have out front, you know, in New Jersey, a bad day. We had a knot and a half or two knots of current. That, and that was noticeable. That was huge. Right. A knot, knot and a half or two knots of current out here in, off Fort Lauderdale. That's a, <laughs> that's a beautiful day. That doesn't happen. I mean, yeah. What are you talking no, about? That's I, not physically yeah. possible. <laughs> I mean, I, I've seen six knots of current where you're dropping literally 500 grams in 250 feet of water and you still can't hold bottom. Right. And doing, doing the math. 500 grams is a, is a, a pound and More two than ounces, a pound. give or take. Right. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, Crazy. But yeah, with the, tile, with the tile fish, it got to the point that depending on who you are in the group, most guys will fish 20-pound braid, and that's where they stop. Right. We've gone down to as uh, fine as 8-pound test uh, with, with 10 to 15 being the norm. Mm-hmm. We've been on trips on days where – You've caught a couple of fish. You cut your jig off to give to somebody else to let them tie it on. But because they were using the next line diameter up from you, they'd hit bottom, bounce once, and, and the jig floated. It never hit bottom again. Right. That's, that's I mean, you can literally, te- you literally see the test in action, in progress. Right. Here we are using 10 and 15 pound. These guys are using 20. They can't hit bottom. Right. Yeah. Same thing that happened to me. I couldn't hit bottom with 30 and 680 feet due to the current. Right. So all that, all that being said, like depth matters. Right. And it doesn't just matter uh, for thinking about what line you fish, but it's also gonna, um, this is another big aha moment for me on the first trip on the Yankee caps. I had rods that I loved and I said, oh, this rod fishes this weight range to this weight range. It's super versatile. It's great, but I'd never fished really deep. And then all of a sudden you start fishing those jigs in 800 feet of water or, you know, a thousand feet of water and the rod doesn't behave the same. Right. So the rod completely, yeah, it completely craps out and you can't move the jig. It actually takes effort. Right. And you haven't changed the jig weight, but you've materially changed the depth and all these factors that go into it. So again, the, the point of all this is not to overcomplicate it or intimidate people or scare people away. But I think sometimes we tend to not trust ourselves and we're like, oh, well, there's a system for this. And this rod says this. And man, it felt great at this depth, but it feels terrible here deeper. And this one that felt terrible shallow feels great deep, like trust it, right? <laughs> if you're able to manipulate the jig and stay in contact with it and you're able to get bit, you're able to fight fish, then that rod is suitable for that depth. And don't be surprised if you find that the ratings either are completely use. They're not completely useless. They're directionally correct always. But uh, one rod rated for 150 grams to 250 grams may behave very differently than two other rods rated the same. Uh, And that's okay. That's not you being crazy. That's just, it's, it's such a dynamic rating. It's so dependent on the style of jig and the depth of water that in in defense of the manufacturers, it's hard to to put these ratings on there. And the best thing you can do is go try them and, and figure out what works for you. Right. And so don't, don't be scared of that, but just be aware that the depth matters. And so if, if if I was going to really simplify it, I'd say, if you're going to be fishing shallow and let's just call arbitrarily shallow, you know, 300 feet or less, you can probably generally trust the ratings that are on the rod, ignore the PE ratings, but you can trust the gram ratings as a starting point, uh, overlay that with the starting point of this one gram per foot of depth and see kind of where that adds up and seems to make sense. And don't be surprised if something that fishes very, very well or very poorly in shallow water suddenly either craps out to use Rob's term 
or starts to shine at a, a greater depth because it really is a different load and a different range that you're asking of the rod when you start to go deep, right? Yeah. We we talked a little bit about you hit on length. This is this is one of these things, and I and I know I've been on a very personal journey all over the map on this, which was useful and instructive. But talk to me about length a little bit. Re- remembering that uh, you know factory rods and most blanks are built for the average masses, not for any one specific angler or any one specific fishery. The 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 industry average right now, although it is moving, seems to have been six three six 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 eight is kind of a quote fingers average. Uh, slow pitch length. And then, but we've also seen longer rods. You hear about techniques like long fall. And and I know you and I have personally, you've opened my eyes to the value of a much shorter rod, depending on the boat you're fishing on. Like, talk to me a little bit about that. So I, I'm brand new at this. I'm trying to figure out where to start. And I'm trying to understand these lengths that are all over the board from, from five, eight to, you know, eight feet. Uh, talk to me about length and how you think about that. All right. I'll throw a little short story in here. Okay. When I was with Shimano, uh, Shimano was working on designing a series of rods for the Northeast, specifically, you know, top of Delaware up into Massachusetts. Okay. Here's the funny part. At that time, uh, it was not uncommon for, for us, the fishermen, to pick a seven or an eight foot rod up, depending on what we were doing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but if you went into Long Island, they, it, that dropped down to like six foot. But then when you get back up into Massachusetts, that gets back into the eight foot for the guys yo-yo jigging cod and pollock. Right. I mean, even even the tuna, even the uh, you went on a tuna charter uh, out to the canyon chunking. You know, at that time you had stand-up rods, uh, you had trolling rods, and then if you had a custom rod, it was typically built like a, a grouper rod down here in Florida or a codfish rod up in the Northeast. You know, something that could handle. 50 pound 50 pound 60 pound line and 15 pounds of drag with a with a tuna pulling on the other end right and it it, it was amazing how just going to a little different area uh changed, changed the yeah. need right or the or the perce- perceived need now first rods we got we got access to first low pitch rods we got access to are like six two six three oh now that's mm-hmm. too short and that's not the case. It's absolutely not the case. Long, uh, long fall or long, long fall jerkers, they're seven, uh, seven to seven foot ten. Uh, most, most of what I've seen, the, the average slow pitch rods anywhere from five feet up to six foot eight. And there are a couple longers uh, using Johnny jigs, for example. They prefer mm-hmm. a longer rod and deeper water. Mm-hmm. But right now, the, the market trend seems to be about six foot, six foot two. And the actual Japanese trend, now, I, I'm, I'm not the spring chicken I once was, and you're right there with me, so don't, don't have too much fun. <laughs> Man, you shut me down uh, before I could jump through the window. <laughs> but the, the, the actual Asian trend is going into a, a five foot four, a five foot, five foot four or five foot six rod just because of the ease on the angler you're fishing all day long with let's let's do the math you're fishing all day long with a 280 gram or 10 ounce jig in 500 feet of water i mean that's that gets to be a workout that you're, you're you're not really paying attention if you're catching fish you don't really pay attention to it right but if you're not getting bites uh, dropping down, scoping out, reeling back up, empty a bunch of times. You know, it, it, you get to re- you really start paying attention to 
wow, this is starting to put some fatigue on me. Right. And if you, uh, if, you know, if you imagine it's sometimes hard to conceive when we're fish, thinking about fishing, but if you imagine tying a, a two pound dumbbell to the end of your line and having to pick that up a thousand times in a day, when you use a shorter rod, it's a shorter lever and gives you more mechanical advantage uh, than the longer rod, right? And you literally, yes. I mean, you could do the calculation on that and come up with exactly what it means. That's not to say you should always go short and we could get so short we can't manipulate the jig or keep the line clear of the boat and it's useless. But it's it's um, it's a very, very real factor, right? You feel it when you're fishing. Uh, a perfect example, private boat versus headboat like the Yankee Cat. Yes, I'm glad uh, I was going to take you there next. Let's talk about that a little bit. Private boat, you can kind of get away with whatever it is you want to do because it's private boat unless you upset the guy you're fishing with. <laughs> so if you if you if you want to right. fish that five foot rod, you can. If you want to fish right. the, the seven foot ten long ball rod, depending on what you're doing, you can. Yeah. Getting on the Yankee caps, I frowned upon using, and I love deep liner and I love garage nagi. I mean, they're the mm. essence of they're the essence of what you know what everybody strives to be. Right. Uh, they they're the first. They, they are the first. Well, they, their best-selling series is the 60 series, and it's six feet long. Right. So, you know, you're on the bow of the Yankee Caps trying, you know, you're casting a 500-gram jig up tied and, and going, you know, worst-case scenario, you, you're not always fishing 500 grams, but going worst-case scenario, what's going to cast better, the longer rod or the shorter rod? Right. Well, and you have, you know, on that particular boat and and for anyone who you can find it, I think it's www.yankeecaps.com. Uh, if, if you're interested, don't think twice, book a trip, try to get a jigging specific trip, go. It's awesome. But you will have situations like we we tend to catch a lot of tuna uh, at night and at sunrise and sunset, right? As well as a lot of demersal species. We even catch blackfin on the bottom in a thousand feet of water. It's crazy. But you, what do tuna do when you get them close to the boat? They start circling, right? And Purple, this is a hundred and five foot boat, right? Where you can be over 20 feet above the waterline. And just based on the hull geometry, you can get in a situation where you can't keep your line off the hull with a short rod. And you have trouble keeping untangled from other anglers in that situation with multiple fish hooked up, right, with a short rod. Whereas if you have a longer rod, you are able to lean over the rail, stick the tip of the rod in the water and keep the line off the hull, for example, right? So whereas yeah. with a private boat, you tend to be right at the water line. The, the water line might be at the depth, at the level of your feet, your knees, your hips, whatever. You know, you, you have the ability to clear the line off the motors, off the hull, off other anglers, whatever. You don't have that luxury when you're 21, 22 feet above the waterline, right? So that's, these are things you need to take into consideration. So, you know, don't, don't just immediately run out and buy a, a five foot, you know, eight inch rod. If you're going to fish off the Yankee caps all the time, which uh, Captain Greg would appreciate very much. Um, but, you know, you might have, you might need a longer rod for that boat, but for your private boat, it's going to work you less and fatigue you less as Rob is describing. You might want a shorter one. Yeah. And you're, you're spot on about uh, you're spot on about fighting the fish. I mean, you hook up, you're in the you're in the pulpit, literally. You you're tipping the boat as far forward as you could be. You hook a tuna on the bottom. That fish starts running back towards the stern. You've All over that from, boat. <laughs> you've got you you you're running down one side of the boat, going right. over, around, under. Right. And keep in mind, depending on the trip, those guys are working with electric reels. Right. So now you've got the cords. They really can't move. They, they right. fight. To, You're not allowed to touch they, the gaffs on yeah. the rail. <laughs> you can't touch the gaffs on the rail. So you got to right. get from the, I mean, the faster you can get back to where the fish is going, like just like walking a dog, Yeah. the faster you can get back to the better chance you have to get the fish in the boat. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, uh, so all that being said, length matters. I will tell you, I have gone through an evolution on this and I am personally, and part of it is I've gotten older, right? But, uh, I am really, really liking the rods in the five, nine to six foot length. Uh, whereas I have built historically a lot of stuff, six, six and longer, even up to eight feet. Again, they all have their place and they can be the right you know, horses for courses, any, anything yes. might fit in the, in the right conditions, but just be aware that, you know, the length does impact how you experience, how hard you work as an angler. Uh, uh, so, you know, a little bit of an admonition that go as, maybe go as short as you can go and still comfortably fish all the boats you're going to fish and deal with all the conditions you're going to deal with. Right. Rob, another question people get all the time, and I probably know the answer. I certainly know the answer for me, but uh, I, that people didn't tune in to listen to me about this. Um, talk to me a little bit about spinning versus casting. Some people simply more comfortable with the spinning reel. Some people, I think, confused because a lot of a lot of people have gone to really heavy duty spinning gear for speed jigging. And so they don't understand if we were to say, hey, you might want to be careful. Don't really recommend spinning as much for the slow pitch jigging. They're like, well, wait a minute, but that's what we use for speed jigging. So talk to me a little bit about and acknowledging that personal preference with all this stuff, with line, with depth, with length of rod, certainly there's personal preference and don't be afraid to fish what you like or what you're comfortable with. But if someone is new to the sport and they're trying to figure out spinning versus conventional for slow pitch, what advice would you give them? Hmm, that's a great question. Now, let me, let me answer, let me answer this question a little bit backwards. Okay. On the lightest end of slow pitch jigging or speed jigging, you wind up with micro jigging. Mm -hmm. And the micro jigging presents an amazing opportunity for spinning tackle. Light yep. rods, light reels, light line, light jigs, the whole, everything is about light and sporty. And I mean, you know, some of the fish that these guys are catching are still impressive Big. and or amazing on, you know, right. ultra light tackle, essentially. Right. I'm going to say the gravitation towards the conventional tackle, or as they say in the UK, an overhead multiplier. Right. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's based on just based on the style of jigging. Uh, whether most of, like you said earlier, most of your bites, 90% of your bites are going to come on a fall yep. or at the pause when the jig first tumbles over and starts to fall. That's right. where most of your bites are going to come. Right. With a conventional reel, you can follow the line down with your rod tip. You can control the fall a little bit. You can, you can just, I mean, old, old school, old school yo-yo jigging. You just yerk the rod up and, and drop the rod tip and watch the line fall. And if the line right. stopped, you had a bite. Right. Uh, doing with the conventional, you've got a lot more control. You can take that extra, I mean, literally, I, I, I've done it depending on what we're doing. If it's tile fishing, typically I'm in a free school with my thumb in the spool. So I can bounce a, a, a couple times. You know, I, I didn't touch bottom. I let out two feet of line. I touched bottom that time. Okay, great. I didn't touch bottom that time. I had to let out five feet of line. You can't do that with a spinning reel. Yeah. I also think, you know, another thing, um, as you're mentioning, when you're doing this right, so often it's kind of a slack line presentation, right? And, yes. and spinning reels do not like slack line. And, you know, we forget this sometimes, but every time you reel against the drag with a spinning reel, or the fish is actually line. peeling drag, you're adding some twist to the line, right? And again, that twist, which doesn't seem significant under normal fishing conditions, when you're suddenly fishing in a thousand feet of water and ha adding a lot of slack to the mix, 
you can really get snarled up with a spinning outfit in a hurry. It's not to say it can't be done. Um, but yeah, I, 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 that's an interesting, yeah, I agree. I think for ultralight micro jigging, which gosh, I don't know, some people define it as less than 150 grams. I'd probably define micro jigging as less than 60 grams. I don't know. So, you know, when you're talking about micro jigging, uh, that's a good point. It can be a lot of fun and spinning tackle can handle that very well, often in shallower water with lighter jigs. Right. But, you know, just be advised that, and the only other consideration I would give people is, and this is changing a little bit in the modern tackle world. Um, and remember, I'm a guy and Rob's a guy, like we're not reading the manufacturer's recommendations and they say their spinning reel puts out 45 pounds of drag. So we're like, oh, I've got plenty of drag. It's 45 pounds. Trust yet verify, right? Like it would not be the first time that manufacturer's ratings uh, don't reflect actual mileage and performance. But generally speaking, <laughs> historically, you've got to spend about twice as much to get X amount, the same amount of drag on a spinning reel as you do on a conventional. And it just has to do with the construction and the manufacturing and the inherent design of them, right. And geometry and things. But, um, so also, you know, if you really start to rig your stuff up and pull and say, Hey, I'm literally going to be fishing a measured 15, 15 and a half, 16, 17, 18 pounds of drag, typically to truly get that much smooth drag out of a spinning reel, you're going to have to pay twice as much as to get that much smooth drag out of a conventional reel. Right. So, so just just be advised, right? Doesn't say doesn't mean you can't do it. If you're doing it, it's working great for you and you love it, keep doing it. Nobody's we're not the uh the slow pitch police and we're not trying to kill anybody's joy. Just do whatever you want to do, but but do be advised of those things. And you know, again, this is a rod building podcast and we're talking about the rods, but talk about the reels a little bit for me just for a second. And again, I know we could do an entire episode on that and maybe we should, but we're talking about these powerful uh overhead multipliers. Uh, since you started it, um, conventional reels, reel on top, typically non-level wind, although there's some very good new level wind stuff hitting the market that seems to fish the heavy drags and manage the light lines and and not break down. But um, talk to me about what you're looking for in a slow pitch reel based on your experience. Well, let's let's start off, and I'm not bashing the spinning reels. Yeah. Now, okay. Fair enough. Back to back to the earlier part of the, the podcast. The rod was designed to lift the jig to enhance up to entice a fish to bite. And after that, its job was over. Think about a spinning reel versus conventional. Conventional reel, you can point at the fish, point at the bottom, turn the handle, and you, you can make you've got the mechanical advantage. On a spinning reel, you're trying to fight a fish with a rod that's not meant to fight a fish. Yeah. You've got an inherent 90 degree turn on the line. How do you get the slack to make the turn? Pump right. the rod. Right. right. That, that's that's probably your biggest drawback uh, in, in current with current tackle tech. Yeah. And until you get into some of the, and, and there are now uh, there's a couple brands that are incorporating a solid blank technology, mm-hmm. a light rod, solid blank tech. But still, you still got to pump that rod with a spinning reel to create the slack to put the line on this on this wall. That's a great point. Yeah. Great point. Now, with conventional, I, I, I'm not going to. Whatever conventional reel works for you is what, you know, whatever fits in the piggy bank, that's, that's great for you. Yep. I, I started off with Shimano, mm-hmm. uh, the Toriums, the, uh, the Trinidads. Yep. I gravitated towards accurate because of the, the weight of the reel and line recovery and how much line the actual spools held. Yep. Uh, I mean, 
I got into narrow schools and I, I really, and for, for jigging purposes, I love the narrow school because the line tends to fall in the middle of the school on its own. Right. Whereas you're fishing with a wide school. You, you must, if you got a full spoon school, you must just uh, guide that line with either a finger or a thumb to get it on the school unless you're level line. Right. Now going back yeah. to the hookup, back to the hookup, you, you're literally hook the fish and you're pointing a rod at the fish with today's technology. Whatever conventional bait cast style reel you've got can turn the handle depending on how your drag is set. Yep. You know, if you if you can't turn the handle, you're either stuck or the fish is going the wrong way. Right. Yep. Absolutely. So, you know, I think uh you'll find a lot of personal preference in reels, but there are a lot of reels now that are either purpose built. And so I think of like Shimano OSHA jiggers, uh Okuma yep. Tesoro 5Ns. I think of some of the Saltiga 35JH is some of these, you can get a purpose-built technique-specific slow-pitch jigging reel, and they're great. There are also technique-specific or, or sort of modified versions of, for example, Accurate Valiant 500 Narrow that's built in a slow pitch configuration with a big power handle and, and has a few different features, no click, you know, no clicker, some of those things, but, you know, fish what you want, obviously the piggy bank matters, but Valiant 500 in either single or two speed Valiant 300, uh, either single or now that's a two speed option. Shimano OSHA yeah. jiggers in the 1500, 2000, 3000 size Daiwa Saltigas, either star drags or, uh, lever drags, all, all of these reels are suitable. You can find a ton of literature on this stuff. Understand that people have brand loyalties, people have personal preferences, people like the way they look. But I do think you definitely want to stay with a narrow spool configuration so you don't have to worry too much about line stacking, as Rob mentioned. And then on your gear ratio, you know, there you definitely want to be, in my opinion, it's not so much about the gear ratio as how much line you can take up with one turn of the spool at depth. And, and to me, you want to be able to get at least 36 inches of line at depth or 32 at a minimum, maybe. I don't know if you have an opinion about that. And I've also found, again, when you think about how we're fishing and how we're trying to fight these fish, I, I've been back and forth in the last 10 years on two speeds. And I'm really favoring the two speeds now because I'm spending a lot of time at depth fishing wrecks, trying to catch grouper and big fish. And man, when you're pointing the rod at them, drop it in low gear and just start cranking and don't stop. That has been really effective for me. But again, yeah. fish whatever you like uh, and don't be afraid to try different things. There's a lot of personal preference involved, but you know, uh, you need a smooth drag that is capable of fishing a true measured 15, 16, 17 pounds of drag and, and maintain smoothness, right? And, and if you can have a good smooth drag curve where you've got some adjustability at that high end of the drag range, that's that's a real plus. There's auto engage, there's star drag versus lever drag. There's some other considerations, but just know you'll be well served if you buy a widely accepted or technique specific reel for this and, and be mindful that the rod's going to be very small and very light and you don't want to overwhelm it with a big clunky wide reel that's going to give you all kinds of problems. And I know these reels are expensive, but it's an investment in your own success and happiness and, and, and probably worth it. Right. So anything else you'd add on reels before I drag you through actions and, and, and things like that? No, I think, I think we cover the reels. It's, okay. it's brand specific, high, high retrieve, smooth drag, narrow frame, uh, narrow I'll, spool. Yeah. I'll, I'll throw one other, one other consideration out there. Sure. One of the reasons I fish the way I fish is because my home waters right here, right now, or, or now. If I'm getting on a boat real quick, Right here, right now, it's going to be out of Fort Lauderdale. Right. I know 
the fish are gonna the the, the bottom fish are gonna bite close to the pe- close to the structure, and you have very limited chance to react. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to fish heavier, a little heavier line, a, a definitely a heavier drag, a, def- a heavier leader setup, and I typically fish locked up at whatever that drag setting is, knowing that. I may hook a grouper that's 50 or 60 pounds and I've got one chance to get it right. And it's, it's quick. Win or lose in the first 30 seconds. Yep. Pretty, pretty much getting away from the home waters, going, going on the Yankee caps, fishing the Gulf, or let's, let's go completely off the, off the, off the chart and say, I'm going back to New Jersey. I'm going to fish for 60 pound tuna. You know, now we're back into, okay, I can fish us. I can, I can opt to fish a drag, a reel that puts out a little less drag knowing that, you know, I'm only going to fish 15 got pounds. Some space to play with. Yeah. 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 I, it, it, even a tile fish, a 40 pound tile fish, he's going to run. He or she, she mostly probably she's yeah. going to run, but she's got no, she's got nowhere to go. She might go back to her burrow. She's on a mud um, bottom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But she's on a mud bottom. She's got no structure to get you into. Right. So you, you let, let the fish run until it runs. And then, yeah, then fight the fish. Awesome. Great advice. So we let's let's talk a little bit. We talked about length. We've talked about the ratings on these things. Let's talk about the powers a little bit, because um, one of the things that's really interesting and I think people need to understand is I would say this as a custom rod builder for 28 years. Uh, there's certain types of blanks that I can put my hands on. I can put them on a flex board. I can sort of measure them and quantify the action. And I have a really good idea of exactly how they're going to feel uh, when you go fish them. Right. Due to the dynamic nature of the way we use these rods with different weights of jigs, different uh, actions of jigs. And by the way, Rob mentioned some jigs flutter more and flutter less. Some jigs pull harder against you as an angler or work you harder. And some are very easy and a joy to fish. Like the amount of resistance you experience trying to manipulate the jig can vary from jig to jig and style to style. Right. And so, um, you know, over time, it's, it's so difficult for me to hold a rod, uh, a slow pitch jigging blank in the shop, measure it by any kind of static quantification methods and know exactly what I'm going to get when you go out and fish it. Right. And so this can be frustrating as a rod builder because you have an idea and it feels right and it flexes right and it bends right. But the application is so dynamic and there's so many variables that in a way you don't really know what you've got until you get it out there and fish it. Right. So absolutely. Uh, that that's one of the things that can be challenging about recommending a rod to people is if you haven't fished it with your own two hands at various depths with various jig weights, it's hard to know exactly how it's going to behave. And very often they act differently than what the ratings are. And that's okay. Just know that going in. And then the other thing is that I, I try to tell people all the time is there's personal preference, right? So Rob and I could go out on the Yankee caps with a bunch of super, experienced guys who have a lot of time at the rail and are all excellent anglers, present company accepted. And we might not agree on what our very, very favorite rod is. Although some of the usual suspects keep coming up or we all agree like, Hey, yeah, I see what you like about that rod. Like it's, it's a great rod. I just want something a little this, right? So remember, there's always a lot of uh, personal preference in this, but I do think there is a little bit of a separation. And, and partly I may be saying this because of some of the projects you and I have been working on for the last two or three years with Jig Pro, JYG, and with, uh, you know, Thrasher and some others to develop, you know, slow pitch blanks specifically for the American market. But 
talk to me a little bit about there. I do think there is a, a little bit of a traditional Japanese action and, and some of the more progressive or faster actions. And I think about rods like the Sea Falcons. I think about rods like the CTS from New Zealand, blank those blanks, which are excellent. I think about um, certainly some of these Thrasher slow pitch blanks, uh, some of the JYG slow pitch blanks that were sort of evolving over time that are a little bit of a different action. We alluded earlier to a little more butt to fight fish. Like, like talk to me about that. Like, um, so just before I hand this to Rob to get his take, I just want to make sure everybody listening understands, just like with fly rods, where there are very traditional, uh, you know, cane or fiberglass actions all the way to, you know, the Sage R8 is has a lot of feel. But, man, that's a fast saltwater rod for, you know, casting uh, weighted flies on windy flats, right? Like there there is a range of actions in these rods as well and there's a range of personal preference and there's a range of what fits the application right so there's not a right or wrong answer if you like it and it works for you that's the right answer but that said talk to me a little bit about if we if we stereotype a little bit and sort of categorize broadly and generally this more slow traditional japanese action and some of these more uh, faster action or what I might call a more North American action or something like that. Yes, that, that's a great observation. There are plenty of rods out there. There's a whole spectrum of rods uh, with some varying degree of multiple actions. Me personally, I tend to favor the faster actions, the deep liner, the garage nagi, uh, the CTS blanks that you built, mm -hmm. the even, even JYG's uh, uh, original, well, actually, the, the current slow pitch rod is still designed along that faster action rod. Right. The complete opposite end of the spectrum. I was sent the original Thrasher. Well, actually, I was sent version, I don't know, six, six or seven of the Thrasher prototypes, and that was a completely slow action bend through the real seat down to the butt rod. Right. And those rods are out there. Uh, Temple Reef, uh, Temple Reef, uh, their first series of rods were very slow now they, they've they've done some progressive work they've stiffened up some butts mm -hmm. they've lengthened the butts they've uh, changed their blank diameters materials which change the actions and then party rise another very slow action rod action personal preference the jig rod is designed to recoil and recover quickly so you make a uh, you make one handle turn on your reel uh, by spec, that hit, you just turn that handle, that handle just recovered three feet of line, give or take. We'll, we'll, we'll use round numbers. That rod just bent. Uh, you didn't do anything. You just made one turn with a handle. You recovered three feet of line. That jig launched three feet up and that rod took all that energy bent over. And now it's snapping up into recovery to launch that jig up and make that jig do what it does on, on a swim, on the pull upwards. Almost like uh, a diving right. board. Almost like you jumping yep. on a diving board. Yep. You, you, you put all that energy into the rod, and that energy is now transferred through the line to the jig. Me, personally, I've done it with, I've fished all of these rods we've talked about. I've fished prototypes of, you know, various different types you help design uh, prototypes and, and, and evolve prototypes, I, right? I've, I've helped evolve some of them. Yep. My, you know, my first rod was a Maxell. It was very fast. My second rod was a, was one of Kilsana's blanks. The third rod I, I got, I got, I got into the Temple Reef. So I just, you know, right there, I just went through all three actions that were out there in the world at the time. Right. 
and I settled on I settled on the Japanese fast. I like I like the the faster action because there's still a tiny bit, bit tiny bit of a butt, not a fighting butt, mm-hmm. but there's still enough of a butt to let me pitch the jig the way I want, and or more importantly for me, let me cast away from the boat. On the slower rods, you, it's a little tougher to do. You, you you know, as you swing the jig back, the whole rod loads like a fly rod, and you have to wait for it to recover so you can cast. Right. Yeah, I watch guys on the boat fighting their tackle, trying to cast further with the slower rods, and they just they can't. It right. Just it it won't it, it, just physics won't allow it. And what Rob's referring to uh, when you're fishing out of a dead boat that is drifting, you will often like on the Yankee caps that boat drifts bow forward right and so we will generally walk up to the very front of the boat the pulpit and throw as far up drift you know as far in the direction the boat is drifting as you can and let the jig sink and then walk down on the yankee caps it's typically the port rail but it could be the port or the starboard rail and you're walking down and then once you hit bottom you reel some slack out of your line get tight get good contact with the jig and then you're fishing on the way back right if you're yeah. in a private boat that's not drifting or that's holding over a spot and you're just dropping straight down, that's not a consideration for you, right? It's a huge consideration on the Yankee caps, especially if you're fishing, you know, loop current and, and challenging conditions, right? So just, you know, again, there is no absolute right. There is no absolute wrong answer. But the more you can be aware of how you're going to be fishing and what you need to do to be successful, the more you can uh, pick the right action. Right. And you might even, Rob, you might use a different action on different days in different situations. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, wow. Different days, different situations. I, if you look historically back at what I've done, I prefer fishing for tile fish with a long fall rod. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. It's just I've caught more of my tile fish fishing the longer rod. I, don't, I, I can't explain why. I don't know why it is. It's I didn't do it on purpose. It's just I read I read that situation. I read that you situation. Plead the fifth. You plead the fifth. I read, I, I read the situation and it told me reach for the nine iron. Yeah. Well, that, that's the value of experience, right? And that's why I like uh, watching what you're doing, so I can do the same thing and have a better chance of catching fish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I know we've sort of drugged this out because we're both passionate about the topic and we're getting slightly long, but uh, t- let's talk a little bit about in a conventional setup, um, spiral versus guides on top. I have built both. I have fished both. I can use both. I know personally what I do as an angler and a, and a rod builder, how I like to set them up. You know, I have seen and read rumors that uh, spiral wraps are for amateurs and all really serious, competent pros only use guides on top. You know, talk to me a little bit about uh, spiral versus guides on top for conventional slow pitch rods. Oof. User yeah. <laughs> preference. User preference. I know. Preference. I promise no religion, no politics, and I'm getting dangerously close. So <laughs> I acknowledge I acknowledge that I've got us in the, in the orange, if not the red here. I've heard I've heard the same arguments. I've used both. Uh, yeah. I've uh, you and I have actually had many discussions on which. Yes, we have. <laughs> uh, me personally, again, I'm going to go on to if I, if I've got my custom Sea Falcons, they're acid wrapped. Yep. If I've got my deep liners and garage nagi, they're tr- standard wrapped. I can fish both. I will say the acid wrap I favor, and this this is not picking on Daiwa in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Daiwa J braid. It's amazingly soft. I love the line. It fishes well. It knots well. It's amazing. It's so soft that if you get any sort of a breeze, wind, hiccup, anything, it will wrap. It, 
it, it, it blown in your face. It yeah. will rat. I, yeah. I mean, it's if you do any of the night fishing, whether you're yeah. tuna fishing, mangrove snapper fishing, right? You might not see you might not see that over wrap in the night. And by the, by the time you get the bite, next thing you know, you've got a broken rod or at least pulled some of the single foot guides out. Right. Yeah, that's 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 definitely religion at the, at the dinner table. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 for sure. So, you know, it, I come down just to I won't chicken out. Right. Like I, I heavily favor uh, the spiral raptor acid wrap rods for a host of reasons. And I, I can absolutely disabuse the myth uh, that they're they're just for amateurs and the, all the experienced anglers are only using guides on top. Uh, a lot of the experienced anglers are using whoever they're sponsored by. And if their guides on top or spiral, that's what they're using. And that's okay, right? So don't pick what you like. If you're going to build something, build what you like. I mean, what I recommend builders is build two identical ones, one with guides on top, one with the spiral or acid setup. And we'll provide links to build sheets for both with guide trains and seat recommendations and grip shapes and things like that. And you can try them. Um, that's the best way to get informed in this debate, in my opinion, is to try both and see the pros and cons of both. But I do favor the spiral for a host of reasons. And, you know, I have heard the argument that spiral breeds bad technique because it's so tangle free and doesn't tip wrap. You should really be paying more attention. You should be focused on your technique and you won't tip wrap regardless of wind. If you're doing what you're doing, I would say, Hey, come fish with me four days, four nights, you know, four days and three nights straight on the Yankee caps in 110 degree heat in August. And, uh, tell me you're absolutely lucid and paying attention to every moment of every pitch, uh, in yeah. all conditions and all weathers. Like I, it's beyond what I'm capable of, at least at this age, uh, you know, so for what it's worth, we get a lot of questions too about, about guide trains. So I just, and again, we're going to post links here that have build sheets, kind of blueprints that you can just print them off, download them, print them off, build a rod exactly like this, either the guides on top version or the uh, spiral wrap version. And it's going to work great for you. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the guide trains. Uh, this is one where with the exception of casting off the front of a, a party boat or head boat, like the Yankee caps, the, the technique is specifically a vertical technique. You're generally just going to be dropping. So having to control line and do all that kind of stuff tends to not be as big a consideration, right? But right. ultimately, the, the advice on these rods is the same as it should be on just about anything else. And that's use as few and as small guides as you can to adequately distribute load on the, on the blank, uh, do the job, and pass all your knots and connections, right? I will say when you think about the weight of uh, the, the the manner of this technique and how much weight you're moving over the course of a few days of fishing, we talked about the length of rods and how that matters. We talked about the diameter of the line and, and how that can matter and, and impact how hard you're working and your success. I do really like titanium frame guides for these. I use a ton of titanium SIC and titanium Torzite for these. And you're getting just such a weight savings when you do that. Um, and it, I know it sounds like I'm trying to sell expensive guides, but you do feel the difference of that over time. And over the course of years, you also see that in corrosion resistance, right? Because you're, you're fishing yeah. in the salt. Uh, these rods get heavy use. And, you know, so for what it's worth, if you can, I highly recommend titanium frame guides. Generally, I'm using a, a guide train that's going to start with nothing larger than a size 10 as the first stripping guide up from the reel. Often I will go as small as size six. 
And then again, typically a spiral wrap for me and either using size six for bigger and heavier things where I'm passing larger knots, 5.5 size running guides is a really good compromise. And I generally don't go smaller than five, even for the micros, just because even though we're fishing very light line and small jigs and everything because of abrasion resistance, bite resistance, we might still be using a 50 pound leader there. Right. And, and, and if yeah. size five starts to get to where you can't you, you go smaller than that, you have trouble passing a, uh, even a good smooth PR FG knot on, you know, 10 pound braid and 50, 40 or 50 pound fluoro. So, you know, just as a build consideration, I think those are things that you want to think about. Um, the other thing is just understand, and again, we'll print some some build sheets. If we think about a typical six foot rod, five foot nine inch rod, six foot six inch rod, these rods are going to have very long handles. And by that, I mean they're almost they're a hundred percent of the ones that I build and that I'm aware of that are manufactured these days are split grips, right? But we're talking about the center of the reel seat being something like on a six foot casting rod, it might be nine inches from the butt. This is going to be something like. And there's some personal preference here too, anywhere from 15 and a half to 18 inches center of the reel seat from the butt on like a six foot, six, three, six, six slow pitch rod. That's going to seem like a very, very long handle to someone who's never built a rod like this. But again, Rob, that's, that's by nature of the way you fish these rods and, and how you fight fish with them. Yes. Yes. So let me, let me go back one step to the guides. Yeah, please. And here's your war story. You built me a rain shadow blank in our goal to find the ultimate uh, micro jig and rod blank here in the U.S. Yep. Your rod uh, wrapped with titanium, uh, beautiful build. Thank you. Uh, I picked up the same exact blank in a custom shop built with stainless steel guides. The difference in the build and the action. Well, let's let's rephrase that. The difference in the action of the rod was tremendous. Yep. I mean, still using Fuji guides. They were yep. slightly oversized, slightly oversized, but stainless. The yep. weight distribution along the blank made the, it just made it sloppy like a noodle rod. Yeah. Again, yeah. I, I'm hesitant to say, yeah, I agree. And that's my experience as well. But I'm always trying to be mindful that those cynical in the audience and you should take everything anybody says, me, Rob included with a grain of salt. You know, obviously I'm the owner of Angler's Resource and we're the North American distributor for Fuji products. So clearly I'm going to be pro Fuji and, and, and pro high end, but it just really does make a difference. The, the difference in the degree to which it makes it tip heavy and the degree to which you're adding ounces of weight, uh, you know, uh, using unnecessary double foot guides and the running guides and using stainless and Fuji are among the lightest stainless framed guides. Right. But it, again, it just, yeah. it, it makes a difference. And this is a, this is a particular type of application where all that weight adds up and, and, and translates into sensitivity and action and feel. So yeah, I'm, I'm hundred percent on board with you. Um, yeah, but so, long handles as well. All right. Long handles. Let's get into that real quick. Now, let's progress into the long handles. I have seen, I know they're out there and I don't agree with it. Metal reel seats, specifically mm-hmm. aluminum reel seats or composite aluminum and, and, you know, carbon fiber. I do not agree with metal reel seats on slow pitch rods. First, you're adding unnecessary weight. Secondly, you're adding, you're overbuilding the build. You're, you, I mean, you're building a 50 pound rod on something that's never going to, you're never really supposed to bend to that extent. Right. Uh, and then third, the fact that you're f- constantly flexing that blank right. inside of that metal reel seat, eventually you're going to make, you're going to either, I don't know the actual, what, what's, what's, 
you're, you're going to flatten the blank, take it out around, and it's going to explode right at the real seat. Yeah, you're, if the and what he's referring to is, uh, in theory, the reels these these rods flex all the way through the butt, right? And anytime you put a very very flexible tube inside of a rigid uh, object that doesn't flex you're creating a shear point, right? So you run the risk of either fatiguing the glue bond between those two things because one flexes and moves at a rate different than the other, or you could, in theory, create a shear point that could, uh, you know, cause the blank to flatten. And and when blanks fail due to overload, they, they sort of fail on hoop strength. So if you think about a drinking straw, if I bend a fishing rod, it flexes and stays round. If I build a drink, bend a drinking straw, it just flattens and, and crushes. That's kind of what a blank failure looks like from being overloaded and and you, what Rob's referring to is from a physics standpoint, there's no argument that if you create a shear point there, you're creating sort of a foothold for that kind of a hoop strength, flattening crush failure, right? Yes. That said, right. now, fish, uh, fish uh, what you want, right? Yeah. Fish what you want. And if you've got you want, one that's it, got an aluminum it, reel seat and it works great for you and you haven't broken it and you're happy, great. Don't change a thing. Um, but if we're talking about building one from scratch, I, yeah, I'm with you. I certainly, both for weight and for that consideration, um, and it just seems like a lot of awful lot of real seat uh, for the job to me. But, you know, again, to each their own. Um, I, th- there's yes. rods out there that have been in service for a long time with those seats. And if that's what makes you happy, that's part of the joy of custom. Build them however you want. Yeah, exactly. But now we're, now we're back to real seat placement. Now, not using Bill's measurements. I measured a deep liner from the butt, from the tip of the butt, but you know, butt cap to the center of the reel. It was 18 and three quarter inches. And I know... You know, depending on how you're building your rods, hey, typically, you know, if you're building a spinning rod, typically the end of the end of the foam and the beginning of the real seat somewhere around 13 inches plus or minus, adding in a butt cap. Right. Uh, I, I I get that, but now picking up a custom rod that I had from Ray's Custom Works, the Sea Falcon, mm-hmm. uh, to the center of the real seat is 20 inches. Mm-hmm. Or uh, let's rephrase that: to the center of the real foot is 20 inches. Uh, for me. I'm I'm not a big guy, but I uh, I wanted I wanted something that was a little bit longer. The next the next rod I had built from Ray, I added another inch that completely screwed up the action of the rod. Mm. Uh, now now literally the, the fulcrum is in my hand, the whole rod's bending back through the real seat, and I'm not really getting the action that I should be getting the jig that I'm working with because I changed the I changed the fulcrum point. And now it's it's not pitching correctly. And, Interesting. Uh, we we saw that in the builds, uh, the test builds that we did with that slow pitch design. Uh, the builder wanted a longer real seat. Yep. Because you know, just just so the rod fit better under your arm when either A, you're fishing or B fighting the fish. Right. But that truly changed the action of the rod in the end. Yep. So, you know, I think, again, uh, one of the beautiful things about custom is you you can tailor it to the angler or tailor it to, tailor it to personal preference, right? And obviously, yes. you know, even, even in these rods, the overall length of the rod begins to make a difference in how long you make this handle. But, uh, you know, like I said, we're going to put detailed build sheets up, but be aware, these are going to be very foreign dimensions. They're going to seem like really 
long handles and we're going to think you're crazy. You know, you're going to think we're crazy that we put this out there, you know, again, tape it up, mock it up, dry fit it, test it, feel it, see what you think, feel free to modify it. But uh, just know that that's not by accident. And the longer you spend at the rail fishing these rods, the more you maybe understand why they have longer handles. And to Rob's point, any, you can always have too much of a good thing. And if you get it too long, it's, you know, it sounds like he's, he's had an experience with a otherwise brilliant blank that's kind of killing the action. So just be advised with that. What we're going to give you should work very well for most anglers with most blanks, but don't be afraid to change it. That's what custom is, right? Yes, absolutely. Man, holy cow. This is, this is like, we're, we're, we're going well over an hour and a half and we still have other things we could talk about. What else have we not talked about that you you'd put out there as it relates to slow pitch rods or, or things you need to think about? Um, I'm going to add one just for all the rod builders out there. These rods are not designed to be high sticked, right? So, um, and generally <laughs> high sticking is anytime you've got the butt of the rod and the tip of the rod pointed in even vaguely the same direction, right? So think of an old ugly stick commercial where you're bending the rod all the way to where the tip's touching the butt. That's a no-no. And these rods are not designed to do that. And they will fail if you do that. The other thing that I just want to warn people about that in the, in the hopes that we might save a life somewhere, one of the things that's really common when you're slow pitch fishing is, again, the rod is not designed to fight the fish. So when you finally have the fish beat and it's all the way to the boat side, maybe it's a fish you don't intend to keep, a fish that's out of season, uh, a fish with teeth that you don't want to bring in the boat. There's this very common behavior among people that haven't slow pitched a lot. What you generally want to do when you get that fish boat side is grab your leader, uh, then back off the drag on your reel. You can put it in a holder or hold it out of the way, put it out of the way and manage the fish off the leader. You will break slow pitch rod if you reel up to the side of the boat and then you just reach up and grab the top third of the rod blank while you're trying to manage a fish at boat side. I have seen it. It's like watching the same slow motion train wreck over and over and over. Just be very, very careful handling the fish at boat side. By nature, the way you're rigging these jigs, you may have one hook, you may have four hooks in a green fish that you're trying to release. And I realize they're a little that takes some technique and getting used to handling a fish at boat side, but do not high stick your rod and do not reach up there and grab the top third of the rod and try to manage that fish. And I will warn you, <laughs> tuna, uh, bonita, blackfin, false albacore, they are the worst for this. You get them to the side of the boat, you think they're done, and all of a sudden they blow up and go out and circle around and uh Someone, someone is going to listen to this podcast, build their first slow pitch rod, go out and on their first tuna blow up that rod right at boat side, exactly how I was describing. And all I'm, I'm sorry, I tried. That's all I can tell you. I tried. My heart was in the right place. Yeah. Awesome. I, well, I, Rob, I man, I... what a pleasure uh, to have you on today. I appreciate the secret squirrel, the legendary secret squirrel uh, <laughs> weighing in and sharing his wealth of knowledge and expertise and experience based on Gosh, 10,000 hours at the rail with this stuff. It's always a pleasure to chat. I learn something every time we talk and I, I've made some notes about handle links and about the spinning, you know, creating slack on the spinning and, uh, and, and, and some of that, uh, you, you never cease to amaze me. I learn something every time we talk and I just really appreciate you taking the time and, uh, I hope we get to get out there and fish together soon. We going to Venice in October to fish with Cap Maddie Burger. Ooh. Oh boy. So talk about throwing, talk about throwing a T-bone on a table. Well, let's go. It's yours, man. It's got your name all over it. Put a brand on it. I think first week oh, in October and we'll, we'll, we'll keep the rest classified, but uh, I'm all looking right. forward to it. Uh, it's always a pleasure and can't wait. Uh, Bill, we, we, we uh, from the first 
first time we spent time at the rail, uh, our first discussion, including beating Colby up uh, every time we fish with Colby. It's been an absolute blast. I, what are you talking again, about that? When Colby was scoping out way too long and he wasn't vertical and tangling everybody up? What are you talking about? Oh, oh up until including uh, he, he was dehydrating himself, but wouldn't take the Dr. Bergs that we were trying to force. Feed oh, yeah. he's over that, man. He's all over my Dr. Bergs <laughs> and my liquid IVs now. Yeah. Rob, Rob is also a hydration <laughs> consultant and specialist. If anybody ever needs it on a four day Yankee cap strip. <laughs> Buddy, I, I appreciate the invite. Uh, say it, you know, it, it goes both ways. I do learn a lot when I get a chance to talk to you. I love, I definitely love picking your brain. And, you know, I told you, I, I've built rods and my experience in building rods and your experience in building rods. I've taken guides and tied them onto fishing sticks. You build works of art. Oh, you're kind. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I, I've really enjoyed the work we've done together on the JYG rods and the Thrasher rods, uh, moving them up the field. So thanks for your expertise. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the Mastering Rod Building Podcast. Please like and subscribe and uh, download it wherever you get your podcast content. We'll see you next time.